This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Gulfstream setting a new transatlantic speed record at 0.88 Mach uh, from Savannah to Qatar. Uh, We'll talk about FAA and Virgin Galactic, some of their woes. Ryanair also with Boeing in talks to get some 737 MAX 10s out the door, but it looks like those talks might have collapsed. In our EVTOL segment today, we've got a bunch about Archer. The FAA has approved a G1 uh, certification for them. And uh, the ISS, on the other hand, is advising against the Archer SPAC merger. So we'll talk about that. Some big stock news there. And lastly, uh, interesting uh, article from the Vertical Flight Society uh, explaining that they've taken a directory of what now includes 500 EVTOL concepts, a, um, which is up from 200 from last summer so we'll talk about some of that and what we can expect if maybe all five of our designs will come to fruition um i'm sure alan has a lot of thoughts on that so first let's talk about Gulfstream. um so alan this is a g700 that reached 675 miles per hour or mach 0.88 on the uh, flight across the atlantic from savannah georgia here in the u.s to qatar and then they also hopped over to paris uh, reaching Mach 0.90, which was 690 and a half miles per hour. So this is pretty fast, but I mean, how fast is this? It's pretty good for a business jet. Yeah, for especially as large as it is. I think the Cessna Citation 10, which was the fastest at the time, was like 0.9192 maybe on Mach. Yeah, so it, it's it's really moving. Aerodynamically, the Gulf Stream's aircraft have gotten better and better as it gotten bigger and bigger. Obviously, it takes bigger engines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a top-end business aircraft, Gulfstream is definitely leading the pack at the moment. It's a beautiful airplane. So obviously, supersonic flight is a big one. Um, is that just breaking Mach one? Like, or is it, are we really looking at like Mach one point five? Like companies like the now defunct Arion and now Boom, who are looking in the supersonic jet realm. I mean, is this not is this not close enough? Or I mean, what's the big difference here? Well, it just it just takes a lot more fuel to go faster, uh, and a different kind of aircraft to break this sonic sound barrier. Uh, Gulfstream has pushed the envelope pretty well in terms of uh, subsonic flight. The aircraft is very clean, and as they as they develop and continue to develop, they have better computational models, better aerodynamic. CFD models for the aircraft, so the aircraft keeps getting cleaner and cleaner. If you look at a G3 to the G700, it's it's almost a different aircraft in terms of its aer- aerodynamics and its performance. I always think it's really interesting to, when they do these uh, sort of like speed trials or world records on speed, because they used to happen in the United States quite a bit. They would go from, the airplanes would go from like uh, New York to Los Angeles or New York to Miami, places where uh, the business flyer would frequent, right? And where the marketplace was. And so you try to set a, a flight record there. So now the flight records are not in the United States. The flight records are over in Europe and the Middle East, where they're 
future customers are. So you tended to to do those uh, speed records where your customer base was. So you can always get an indication of where the aircraft's going to be sold because that's where they're doing the speed record trials. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, is, do you see Gulf Streams breaking the sound barrier or would they have to do like a whole whole overhaul to get there? Well, Gulfstream, I think, has dabbled in supersonic over the last 10 years. There's just been a lot of rumors of that they've looked at it, but they've never pulled the trigger on it. And I think it, as it's a real combination of technology versus the expense and the, and the process of getting something certified. And Gulfstream's not going to waste money. They, they've never been a company to spend money frivolously. They're focused on producing a really great product and keeping their customers engaged. And, and unless there's a great big demand for a supersonic aircraft, Gulfstream's not even going to pursue it. And I, I kind of wonder if they have already tapped the potential marketplace for that and realize the number of aircraft they could theoretically sell versus the, the, the amount of money they would generate. It's, it's just a wash right now or it's a negative. And so they haven't pursued it. All right, moving on. Um, so the FAA said the rocket ship carrying uh, Richard Branson and his Virgin Galactic um, uh, space crew, essentially, or their employees, uh, left their air traffic control clearance area as they descended back on their flight on July 11th. And so now the FAA is saying, you know, why did this happen? And they're looking for answers and banning Virgin Galactic flights until then. So, Alan, what's your take on this situation? Well, isn't it a very weird article? And I hadn't seen this article in the United States. I think we picked this article up overseas, which makes you wonder what is the real behind-the-scenes story. But what they're indicating is that as the Virgin Galactic craft came back down to Earth on its glide path back down to Earth, that the went outside of some enveloped area that the FAA has designated for them to fly in. But I remember watching that flight, and I didn't see anything abnormal about the way that the aircraft came back down to Earth. And it maybe there was some winds there that forced the aircraft to deviate a little bit based on which way the winds were blowing. But maybe they, it sounds like they come out of some FAA pre-designed box for a minute or two. Dan, they're out in the middle of the desert. There's no one else around out there. Does it really make all that much difference? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I know the FAA is obviously really strict, and they want to make sure there's control. I mean, is this really just a an incident where they're just concerned about just the lack, like more about the, the plane itself? Like, why would this possibly have deviated? Or I don't know. I mean, why, why would they be making a probe into this if there wasn't something potentially bigger? Yeah, I don't know. And as if you're the pilot in command, you get to make those decisions, right? So if, you're, if, if the safety of the aircraft comes first, the FAA boundaries come second. Uh, and, and so it's a little weird that they're not going to let them fly anymore until they get the envelope increased, the box increased, whatever. But it, it is odd because you would think that the FAA would say, hey, Virgin, what's going on? And Virgin would say, hey, the wind was blowing at 50 knots at... 30,000 feet, whatever it was, and it blew us off course a little bit. We corrected. We're back in. Not a big deal. Can we work out and negotiate a bigger box? Because this is a, supposed to be a spaceport. This is why they're in New Mexico, because it's a spaceport and there's no one around. And why the FAA hasn't agreed to that is is odd. So there's there may be more behind the story. Maybe this is just one piece of a bigger, bigger problem that they had with that flight. It's going to be hard to tell, and it, it, rarely you're going to see these things discussed in public until they're settled. So uh, we have to keep our eye on this one. 
Yeah, I mean, in version Galactica said it was, it, well, you said it was a high altitude wind and that the pilots did what they were supposed to do. So, yeah, it seems like they're, they seem like they're taking it seriously, but it's kind of like, well, you know, what else, what else should we do there? Like, yeah, I mean, unexpected things happen in flights. Um, but yeah, obviously maybe this is a, just a different magnitude since it's space and, and all that. But yeah, you're right. It's something that we'll probably know more as uh, that story um, progresses. But um, Boeing in in the news cycle here was in talks with Ryanair, who's obviously one of the bigger low cost um, uh, airlines uh, based in Ireland. And Ryanair said that uh, they're just too far away from this potential 737 Max 10 order. And of course, Ryanair has a has a known reputation for swooping in and looking for discounts on planes. Uh, obviously, last year was a great time to get some of those, and they they put in a big uh, 737 Max uh, order. But when they were looking for some of the newer Max 10s, it uh, looks like they're just too far away. So, um, why is this newsworthy? I guess I mean this this seems just like an ordinary like oh yeah I was going to buy a couch and uh, they didn't have the one I want or it was too expensive and so I didn't like why is this really that newsworthy? Well, just because it affects Boeing and Ryanair's stock, that's why. I mean, Ryanair has been such a large purchaser of 737s, and it, that's the model that's selling right now, and Boeing needs to sell a lot of those aircraft. It's going to affect the stock price, and Ryanair is knowledgeable of that fact. They know if they walk away from the table that Boeing's stock price could be hurt and may drive them back to the table. That's probably one of the reasons why they walked away. Uh, because in those big players like a Southwest Airlines or a uh, Ryanair, Boeing responds to them when they have a problem. They'll, they will respond to those still airline customers because of the quantities and what financially it does to the company. The and I, I, I guess when I saw this article was, yeah, OK, uh, this is just one interim piece to a longer set of discussions. And Ryan, Ryanair is, is using the leverage as much as they can. But you got to wonder. If Boeing kind of gets tired of that, you know, because Boeing can't respond, right? So Boeing just loses some stock price because of it and has to swallow that. That doesn't go over well. So you know, what what what's the what do you what do you do if you're Boeing? I don't know if you can do anything besides just wait it out or raise the price when they come back. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's not like Boeing would release a, a press release saying, "Yeah, we are going to sell planes this." people and then they just pulled out or they couldn't afford them like it's not like they would ever do that you're right it is uh, kind of a one-sided where you wonder if there's just uh, some sort of manipulation where they're trying to get you know like you said put pressure on them because the stock price that's possible i have no idea but you're right um boeing stock is down 1.2 percent um obviously not a big hit but something so yeah anytime i guess people are learning of us fall fall through you know sales falling through it's not a not a obviously a, a good thing for a stock price but right but the marketplace kind of realizes that the way you don't see huge fluctuations but if Ryanair says we are not buying 737s we are going to buy Airbus or something else yeah it would have an it would have a negative impact on Boeing stock mm-hmm. well like you said with a lot of fleets want like Southwest for example I mean they're all 737 so they're pretty locked in and you know, as far as like their service and their training of their technicians and part part interchangeability, stuff like that. Um, and Ryanair already has a lot of 737. So you think that, you know, a little, hey, we're not there on price right now, probably doesn't have long-term implications, especially considering all their 
previous purchases of 737 Maxes last year. So it's not like they're going to like overhaul the fleet and go to Airbus. Like that's certainly not going to happen. But at least right now, the the 10s aren't aren't a good fit. Well, if you think about it from Ryanair's position, you're still not up to max number of travelers you had sort of 2019-ish. You're still not there yet. And so you're trying to cook a deal right now because you probably can leverage Boeing. But in Boeing's case, they're just saying they're going to need them at some point. So why don't we just wait? If we just wait a year, the price isn't going to change and we're going to get our money. That's more likely what's going to happen. If Ryanair can't secure that deal now, they're going to secure it in a year from now. All right. So in our EV2L segment today, a bunch of Archer news. Let's start with their G1 uh, certification. So this is a G1 issue paper. Alan, what is an issue paper and why does Archer need it? The issue paper comes into play uh, in when you have a unique configuration of an aircraft uh, because the regula- regulations weren't specifically designed for that particular style of aircraft. And a lot of the electric aircraft, obviously, they don't have a fuel system. They have batteries, which is not necessarily envisioned. Uh, and the, the the way the motors move and the and the, the, the flight dynamics of the aircraft are different than other like a Cessna 172, it's wholly different. Uh, so what the FAA is doing is they're taking the existing regulations, some from Part 23, which is a small aircraft, and some from Part 27 from the small helicopter, and they're creating a master list of, here are the regulations you need to show compliance with, and that kind of gets shoved one way, which goes from the FAA to the applicant. And the applicant gets a chance to respond to them and say, yeah, no, maybe... We'd think this regulation may be a better fit, whatever. Uh, so, But the, the first thing you want to do in terms of getting to type certification is to get the certification basis defined, which is getting the G1 issue paper. There's been a couple. I've seen G1 issue papers in electric aircraft, uh, a couple of them floating around. So there, it isn't like Archer has done something out of whole cloth here. This is something that was already sort of pre-cooked into the FAA system. The next issue paper that will come out is the G2, if they go down this route, uh, which is the means of compliance. So they can define how they, they're going to show compliance and aerodynamics and some and a bunch of other stuff, noise, whatever else. So and it's a step. The biggest, obviously with Archer, the biggest issue is they're not flying anything. At least they're not telling anybody they're flying anything. Their aircraft is still... A model and uh, you know having an issue paper is great having a flying aircraft is a lot better so they got a ways to go well and speaking of Archer um, interesting story out of TechCrunch so ISS which is the um, Institutional Shareholder Services Incorporated this is a basically an advisory sort of a group um, recommended last week that Atlas Crest Investment Corp which is the SPAC that would merge with uh, Archer Aviation. They have advised uh, people should vote against this merger with Archer. So um, now ISS has done this with uh, the Joby Aviation and reInvent Technology Partners SPAC, which went through, went public. So essentially people said, we don't care uh, that you've, you know, issued this uh, warning. We're going to go whole, uh, go ahead and, you know, seal the uh, votes to approve the deal. Um, so ISS sort of has a, uh, a history of doing this, of, you know, giving their thumbs down to these SPAC mergers in the EVTOL sector. Um, but with this latest one, um, giving the thumbs down to the Archer, the Archer merger, 
they're pointing out that this battle with Whisk really puts the company at risk. Um, Alan, do you agree with that? Where do you fall on this um, This kind of like, I don't know, is a sticky warning out here from this, uh, this, this advisor? I think that it is going to be a difficult path for Archer to go down. Uh, not only do they have the engineering challenges uh, that they don't even know about yet as they get the aircraft into some sort of flight test. It's not even the full aircraft yet. Um, get something in a flight test. Then they're got this legal battle thing going on, which doesn't raise investor confidence. And, the, and their valuation has been fluctuating so much. You see almost $3 billion down to um, below $2 billion. <laughs> Like The fluctuations are ridiculous in terms of the amount of money if you even in terms of the percentages it's just widely fluctuating it, it adds a lot of stress onto a company uh that it doesn't really need when it's trying to develop some engineering um article which is what an aircraft is it's it's all engineering right and you, you just don't have time to devote resources away from that because you're spending so much money on making a factory getting tooling, getting drawings, getting the FAA happy, getting to some flight tests, hopefully you don't crash the thing, and all, all those other pieces that you're just juggling so many balls, and Archer is adding more balls to juggle simultaneously. Not sure that's a great idea. And I think the WISC thing still is hanging out there. Uh, WISC has released a video last week, uh, which shows them flying their one of their early prototypes in 2017. So Whisk has been at this for a while, doing the flight test, and it was a, a piloted flight test. It wasn't autumn. It wasn't uh, you know remote control. It was a pilot in the aircraft, which would in 2017 would have been pretty interesting to do. Uh, so Whisk has is bringing the goods, so to speak, saying, "Hey, we've been at this a long time. Archer doesn't even have an airplane. What's the deal? And do you have to convince a judge or a jury of that? That one." That one's going to get interesting because you can convince a jury about anything if you bring the goods, whether they you know, took it legally or designed an aircraft in their own backyard, in Archer's own backyard. Who knows? I, nobody knows yet, but it does lead to a lot of downside risk. So, I mean, if you had to make a prediction, and obviously, you know, just a prediction, um, do you think the merger goes through with, like with Joby or is Joby going to kind of remain the only one? No, I think the merger goes through. I think these SPACs have to happen. They're, they're, the alternative is to collapse the company. So they need that financing. There's no way you can proceed without it, realistically. Now, the question, Dan, and I'm, I don't understand the details of what drives all these companies to SPACs because maybe just the simplicity of it. But if you're if you're a Joby or a, an Archer and you have an existing company and you need to fund and you need to raise money. What you would normally do is you just become a public company. You just go public and announce you're going public, and you go through the SEC uh, paperwork and filings and all the things you got to go do. Does this, which would make transparency one of the keys, right? That's why you, they have that process. Is it, it's very transparent. Does the SPAC somehow hide the transparency part of this? Because it's starting to feel like the investors are saying we can't tell. What's going on inside when you go from because the SPAC envelopes the company? I can't, 
I can't penetrate the SPAC to look around inside, so I don't really know what the value is. Does, does that is that what happens? I'm not sure exactly. There's just a lot less steps involved. I mean, that's why the whole SPAC thing is was a craze this past year. It just makes there's it's a, a much faster. Um, I'm not sure if it's less transparent or not. That's a good question. Um, I'm not an expert on it, but obviously, when there's such a shortened path from private company to public company, you assume there's going to be less of a deep dive into finances. But again, um, don't quote me on it. Yeah, it just seems like the 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 SPAC creates the the marketplace and becomes public, right? And so uh, you, the SEC is evaluating the SPAC, and whatever they purchase is something separate. Right. So it does seem like a way to shorten the process. And you're right. I think shortening process maybe eliminates a lot of visibility that we'd otherwise get to see. Well, and last up on the docket today, um, the Vertical Flight Society released a press release um, recently, a little bit last month, that basically explained that there's been 500 different EVTOL designs that their company has uh, sort of cataloged into a directory, um, including 200 new ones since last uh, July, and just 100, 100 that so far this year, between January um, and now in September. So 500 designs, um, and that includes up to 288 different companies or developers. Alan, is this, is this normal for this, or is this just a crazy free-for-all of everyone? I mean, we've reported on a lot of these, and there's been some silly ones for sure. There's been some that seem like, the, well, this is never going to happen. This is just, you just made a website and a prototype and a drawing. Um, does this surprise you? Is that, I mean, that 500's a lot. It does, because the aircraft industry never has had that quantity of participants, particularly participants that may not have a lot of aircraft experience. Uh, in in their company, uh, proposing airplanes, and the, I, you've always seen the popular what I would term the popular mechanics kind of aircraft. Oh, there's a new aircraft company. They got this unique design feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool, but most likely they're probably not going to make very many of them if they make any at all. In this particular case, you just see a flooding of the market, which gets back to our, I think to our discussion about the SPACs. Is it just a free for all right now that uh, if a SPAC can grab hold of a of a theoretical design, does that then allow them to create an airplane company? You know, do you just have enough credentials? If Bert, Rut if Bert Rutan were out there, and he's not, but if Bert Rutan, you know, the great aircraft designer, were out there uh, pitching at eVTOL, I guarantee you he could have, <laughs> have a deal. And, you know, those, those days are sort of long gone. So what you're seeing, and sort of the Bert Rutan area is sort of long gone. So what you're seeing is, uh, just a lot of different design groups and maybe small aircraft manufacturer dabbled in some home-built aircraft talking about building, you know, a, a, a literally a billion-dollar company. So the, the question in my mind is, and this relates to the Archer uh, again, because the Archer had a YouTube open house video, pre-canned video they released last week. Of which there were only 400 people watching, and I was I was one of the 400 watching what was going on there, and I was a little shocked because, you know, if you're if you're having so many people enter the marketplace, that would make you think or feel like there's a lot of demand for this product. It'd be like saying, uh, we have this iPod, you know, a thousand thousand uh, uh, songs in your pocket, right? Which is the Apple thing. 
And so which which would automatically create create a, a real sense of demand. There's a lot of demand for something like that. When an aircraft company supposedly has huge demand and when they make an announcement, no one's paying attention. It makes you wonder, like, what is the real marketplace here? Is it as big? Because I think Archer was talking about doing uh, 30 to 40 flights a day. That's a lot of demand. So these two things don't seem to jive right now in terms of the number of aircraft companies, the variety of aircraft, and the, 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 the money available to them, and what the existing marketplace, the total addressable market, a TAM, looks like. Like, what is the TAM? Because I, you hear numbers thrown about, and you go, yeah, how many taxi rides are given in a day? I don't know. How many people would be willing to do it? I, I haven't seen it. Maybe you have seen it, but I haven't seen anybody throw real hard numbers at it by just saying, just saying we can do 30 flights a day. There's a difference between doing 30 flights and selling 30 flights. That, that's the difference. So we have a lot. We're going to have a lot to see over the next year, I think. Yeah, there's a lot to prove out. You're right. There's going to be quite a narrowing of the field, as there already has. But you're right. There's still a lot of a lot of unanswered questions. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, wherever you are on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube. Thanks. Thanks again for being here. And be sure to subscribe. Share the show with a friend. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.